The Bharatvarta Weekly is where we discuss the week's most relevant news and events in a calm, measured and interesting way, live with your favorite guests. So if you want to really appreciate the news and actually benefit from it, skip the news and watch the weekly. Namaste and welcome to the Bharatvarta Weekly. I'm Roshan Karyapa. I have with me Abhishek Paul Nirav Kanodra. Together we'll take you through the news and events of the week that was it was a pretty eventful week a rather somber week i would say barring the india england t20 that happened yesterday which we won uh, quite convincingly so this week we'll talk about um, you know prime minister boris johnson's resignation in the uk former japanese prime minister shinzo abe's very tragic death uh, twitter suing the indian government sri lanka declaring bankruptcy amid uh, chaos and riots and some of the interesting Rajya Sabha nominations that we've had, uh, like Maestro Ilai Raja and uh, uh, P.T. Usha and more. Hey, uh, hey, Nirav. Hey, Abhishek. How's it going? Hi, Kari. Doing good. All good. All good. Awesome. Good to have you guys back. Uh, good to have you back, Nirav, after a, a couple of weeks' absence. I mean, people have been asking for you. Exactly. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so moving on, let's talk about the episode that we put out uh, last week. You know, I mean, every time we have Rohit on the show, I mean, it's it's such a thrill uh, because the guy really, really understands his politics. He understands the numbers, the parties uh, and the insights that he kind of throws up is just so rich, you know, and, and even for someone who is not very, very very invested in politics like myself you know i, I can't help uh, getting drawn in by you know all of his uh, you know wh- whether it's history his narrative and all of that stuff uh, so we discussed the maharashtra drama and we traced uh, its roots to the forming of the shiv sena and then the, their alliance with the bjp and what's happened over the years and we spoke about uh, all of the various characters involved as well from Uddhav thakre to eknath shinde to uh, bala saheb and so on abhishek what do you think about the episode yeah, as you said, it was a fascinating episode. Rohit is knowledgeable about uh, almost all states of India, but he obviously uh, has a special place in his heart for Maharashtra politics as well. He's well known or uh, to be an alleged Shiv Sena supporter, right? So, <laughs> but it was great listening to him uh, because for those of us who are on the periphery, right, who don't know much about you know, beyond the headlines of Maharashtra politics, uh, this whole saga brought to uh, for someone like Eknath Shinde, who's certainly not in the limelight as far as national politics con- is concerned before this uh, event. Things like, uh, you know, uh, the little known or lesser known history of the Thane Shiv Sena uh, faction, right, led by Anand Dighe. So people who don't follow things so closely will not uh, know much about it. He also added the trivia that there's been a new movie made about that called Dharamveer, right? And how, you know, Uddhav was attending the movie and he walked out in the middle of it, right? So things like that uh, only add a little bit of uh, nice color to uh, this whole incident. So I would definitely recommend folks, uh, you know, to go and check this episode out uh, if you are interested in understanding more about, uh, you know, this incident of the Shiv Sena breaking into two factions and a change in government there. All right, let's move on to the first piece of news uh, for this week. Amidst endless scandals, 
Boris Johnson has resigned as the Prime Minister of UK. Last week, the British government was in shambles as over 25 ministers handed in their resignations along with dozens of parliamentary private secretaries. The exodus began with ministers Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigning, quoting that the public expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. In his resignation speech outside 10 Downing Street, Johnson was candid in admitting that he had failed to persuade his party colleagues that it would be, to quote, eccentric to change the leader at the present moment. Nirav, this is an interesting time in UK politics. I mean, we did that episode with, you know, Sunil Sharma of the CFOC earlier, yeah. uh, right? And we spoke about some of these aspects. Yes. But we see that, you know, Teflon Boris has finally cracked. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think uh, what has happened is basically every country in the world has uh, the underlying issue about like high inflation and slower growth, right? And uh, this kind of leads to some sort of resentment and a lot of the smart uh, political parties, they know that uh, someone needs to take the fall. And here, Boris Johnson, apart from his antics, apart from party gate, apart from uh, shielding like one member of the parliament who was against like allegations of uh, sexual assault or uh, sexual misconduct, I think what has happened is everybody knew that there is a little bit of anger against uh, PM Johnson and a lot of a lot of his cabinet, about over 20 cabinet members resigned. Uh, if you see now the betting odds, so there are a lot of people who are in the running. Rishi Sunak is one of them. There is Obviously, Sajid Javed himself, the, the former health, health minister. There is uh, Ben Wallace, who's a member of the parliament. There is also another Indian origin, uh, Goen, uh, who's the attorney general, uh, Suela Braverman. But uh, what has happened is, basically, Boris being like uh, the fall guy allows the conservative party to rule for remainder of the term, right? So what has happened is instead of like this leading to calling for a re-election or whatever, the Conservative Party has a majority and a lot of these are like opportunistically, uh, a lot of leaders are uh, throwing their hat in the ring. Rishi Sunak has come out with a video. Uh, it's called Ready for Rishi. And uh, that would be quite interesting because not only would he be the first uh, Indian origin prime minister of the UK, uh, also like his wife has an Indian passport. His in-laws are prominent billionaires uh, Narayan Murthy runs in forces. So there's also going to be some sort of public questioning that any policy that he conducts, does it lead to any sort of a personal benefit to him? If he's like any pro-India policy and sometimes what happens is they actually overcompensate on the other side. But the race is far from over. I think there are more than 10 odd people who are there in the race. I think the bookies give highest odds to Rishi Sunak and Ben Wallace. And let's see, I think after Brexit, UK has been in a sort of turmoil because David Cameron resigned. Then we had Theresa May. There was Michael Gove who was supposed to be in the running then and also when Boris Johnson became PM. And now he seems to be in the background. It is uh, a little bit of a turbulent time. This is a chaotic time. But hopefully, I think the parliamentary democracy, this is the beauty of it. There's not so much of one key man risk and uh, the country can function and move ahead. And also, uh, just adding to it, right? It doesn't change any of the India-UK relationship mm. because it is at mm. a, a wider party level. So like we were talking about the potential India-UK FTA, right? So that those things should continue as per previous timelines. It's not going to be a big political shift in terms of foreign policy. At the top, there's going to be a leadership change. Yeah. And Rishi Sunak's ratings were pretty high, right? I mean, uh, you know, before that whole thing about his wife not filing uh, taxes in the UK and, you know, the Infosys uh, offices uh, staying on in Russia and all of those things came out. I think uh, his uh, ratings were pretty high. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting time, uh, no doubt, in uh, UK politics. It was interesting that someone dubbed the succession uh, theme music to to Rishi Sunak 
Murdoch's uh, campaign campaign video and that, that was yeah that was hilarious there's one for Boris Johnson as well there's one for Rishi Sunak okay <laughs> and probably i don't know probably for others i'm not so sure just to add a few things here right it's a little difficult to you know totally understand british politics because it's sort of a, a a mix between let's say the indian democ- uh, you know parliamentary system and the american uh, presidential system in the sense that while the uh, form and structure of it is more like the indian system the inter party politics is much more like the us system and so basically every prime minister has to guard themselves firstly from contenders within the party people are ready to backstab their leader at any opportunistic time right and so uh, you know one of the uh, jokes or memes about the conservative party uh, so the inter party polling that will happen now right to select the leader is that Uh, it's not about uh, who is the most popular that who will win it is the person who has the least enemies who is likely to you know uh, you know win win their this election so i think uh, for example uh, ben wallace is uh, supposed to be you know one of the uh, prime candidates and about him he seems to be from a scottish background and so one of the benefits or advantages uh, of him becoming the prime minister people are saying is that in that case they can go ahead and do one more scottish referendum sort of confidently uh, because with him as pm it's much more likely that scotland will vote to you know remain uh, in the uk yeah i think quite uh, turbulent times in the uk people are also saying that you know what boris johnson will not Uh, sort of go away from the public limelight at all right so he will continue to be an mp and he'll also he he has like a big uh, journalistic background right and so he he will easily sort of fit back into the whole uh, media landscape uh, once uh, you know his stint as prime minister is over uh, one more thing um, and which just adding to what nirav said so this whole business of prime ministers changing within term happens quite often unless the party feels that they have no chance right so in the early 90s uh, it was quite obvious that under uh, john major the conservatives were about to lose to labor under tony blair right tony blair had become a really popular figure and so at that time no one really wanted to change because they thought they had no hope so they wanted to let this guy right john major lead them to a defeat because no one wants to become a captain when you're about to lose the next series but now people are actually clamoring to become the prime minister because they feel they are still at an advantage right the conservative party is still probably at a better place than what labor is today and so they feel that if boris johnson can be removed with him goes all the stench of all these lockdown related gaps right partying in lockdown all the public perception blunders that boris johnson has probably done uh, those image issues can be you know uh, dealt with and then the new prime minister gets a sort of clean slate and is also the favorite to win the next uh, election yeah i think it's a matter of perception really i mean yeah and and the competition seems really fierce i, I don't know i mean every time someone mentions boris i just think about his really cool remark right i mean uh, you see clips of this on youtube and so on the great supine protoplasmic invertebrate jellies remark 
moving on on friday last week uh, former japanese prime minister shinzo abe was shot dead while speaking at a political event police investigating the assassination have said the suspect held a grudge against a specific organization the alleged gunman has been identified as tetsuyo uh, yamagami who is 41 years old and he believed abe was part of the organization the man shot him twice with a homemade gun this has uh, shocked the entire country where gun crimes are rare he was killed while campaigning for his party in the run up to upper house parliamentary elections on sunday india declared a national day of mourning on the 9th and prime minister modi penned a heartfelt tribute noting i will always be indebted for his warmth and wisdom grace and generosity friendship and guidance and i will miss him dearly abhishek this was such a tragic event um, you know I, i can't think of too many international leaders who have garnered this kind of a emotional response from indians you know abesan was seen as a great friend of india's right yeah i think a very uh, tragic event it's hard to imagine a, an assassination happening in broad daylight in japan right a country with very very strict uh, gun controls and uh, ironically the weapon used is like a homemade gun what we call a katta right in indian parlance quite tragic to see uh, shinzo abe passing away so untimely right so even though he was not the prime minister anymore he continued to remain the most uh, prominent and uh, largest figure right in japanese politics he was campaigning for the upcoming elections which shows you he was still active in politics in he was still active in you know guiding and leading his party so yeah i think uh, his legacy uh, will remain uh, writ large right in terms of the impact he's had on japanese society japanese economy as well as foreign policy around the world right so just a few important points if i may say before you know nirav can also add on it so number one his legacy will be uh, in terms of uh, abenomics right he had a very short stint uh, in around 2007 and all but i think his larger reign was from 2012 onwards and basically the background was that japan had a very slowed down economy uh, economy which had slowed down growth was anemic uh, the, it was often it was deflation uh, in the economy so he he basically uh, brought together a set of policies which is popularly known as abenomics right which helped in you know reviving the japanese economy uh, basically there were three components to it right one is and one of the targets was to you know generate a moderate amount of inflation right let's say 2% uh, for that you know he wanted to print he already printed additional currency that made uh, you know japanese exports more attractive as well uh, second he brought out a number of government spending uh, programs to stimulate demand and consumption and finally he did all the hard work on the reform front right to make japanese companies and industries competitive once again right uh, bringing together some of the best practices around the world right in terms of hiring and firing special economic zones and so on so all this helped in turning around the japanese uh, economy's trajectory somewhat right and for that uh, obviously he'll be uh, well regarded the second is he was uh, a very involved prime minister when it comes to uh, foreign policy right he changed the trend in terms of japan's uh, very passive foreign policy and purely being a sort of vassal state of the united states right post the second world war he recognized the threat of china and north korea and therefore 
uh, he tried to get the defense spending up for Japan from its very low 1% of GDP levels, right? Because of the threat uh, facing Japan from China and North Korea. He is known as one of the father figures of Quad, right? A topic we often talk about on this podcast podcast and uh, he also is also someone who is sort of brought the Indo-Pacific term into existence right uh, earlier the whole paradigm was about APAC right Asia Pacific but he enlarged the concept uh, by bringing in the Indian Ocean and India into the picture as a strategic zone which needs to be free and open so credit goes to him for that as well uh, finally he was a very big let's say friend and for, uh, fan of India as a country right across two prime ministers right Manmohan Singh and Narendra Modi he's helped uh, develop the uh, friendship and relations between uh, India and Japan uh, from his uh, contributions in 2007 to help kickstart the revival of let's say the Nalanda University project to you know his uh, recent work in developing the quad right to his various visits to India right including let's say the image that we have of him visiting doing the Ganga Arati right I think the Japanese people in general and Shinzo Abe in particular recognize the civilizational connect between India and Japan and so with him at the helm I think India-Japan relations became very smooth uh, and much more warm uh, there are so many um, infrastructure projects in India today which have extremely good Japanese funding to thank for right including the bullet train and others so yeah I think Indians definitely uh, felt sad uh, on the passing of uh, Shinzo Abe uh, his presence will definitely be missed by all in this sphere and yeah a really sad event yes yeah it's uh, extremely terrible you know his critics have said that uh, he's been an apologist for like the World War II uh, World War II events and he's gone to the uh, Yakinuri shrine where the Japanese soldiers buried but in the sense what he's he's actually pivoted he says that it is important to be have an independent defense strategy and independent policy foreign policy uh, so uh, that is one major step as well right so he's been uh, active member of the quad uh, he's kind of uh, pushed the economy yeah i mean just to add to what you said you know i was reading some media reports uh, and you know the contrast could not be greater right i mean between the india media indian media reports and the uh, some of the american press uh, you know american press uh, press whether it's uh, new york post or npr npr was just incredible right so yeah. they first talked about called him an arch conservative and Divisive then they deleted figure. it and then they deleted it and then called him uh, something even worse. They called him an ultra-nationalist, right? So, yeah. it, I mean, the U US press coverage was totally bizarre on this. Yeah, uh, I mean, extremely tragic event and really, uh, I think one of one of the folks on Twitter, Naren Manan, had... Uh, you know, uh, had, had a tweet out saying that one of the NHSRCL stations for the Ahmedabad to Mumbai line should be named after him. And I think we can echo that uh, sentiment for sure, right? Uh, our prayers with the Japanese people and especially, you know, Abe-san's family and friends. All right, moving on. Twitter is taking on the Indian government. Uh, they're taking the Indian government to court. Uh, on Tuesday, Twitter challenged the Indian government in court over its recent orders to take down some content on the platform. 
The lawsuit is part of a growing confrontation between Twitter and New Delhi after the Indian government last year passed a new set of sweeping regulations giving it more power to police online content. The lawsuit was filed in the Karnataka High Court in southern Bengaluru city and comes after the Indian government in February warned company executives of criminal action. Well, I think we've spoken about it plenty of times before. Uh, it's come up where, you know, Twitter kind of behaves like a supranational entity, right? Outside of laws and regulations and kind of selectively adheres to some of this stuff in the Western nations, whereas, you know, in developing economies or ascending economies, I mean, they, they seem to have a different sort of a, a template and a morale. I think as every company, I think they have to abide by the law of the land and uh, the regulations that the policymakers or the politicians impose. They should not choose to act uh, independently or like feel like, you know, they need to be, they need special privileges and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, I think, Abhishek, this was specific to certain accounts that were um, asked to be taken down, right? Most notably, I think uh, they asked the journalist Rana account to be taken down. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So I, I really didn't get into, you know, the which account and who, but I feel like Twitter feels right now that uh, it has a decent chance maybe with how the current state of the Indian judiciary is, especially parts of the Supreme Court, right? Depends on which bench it goes to if it reaches there. Basically, I think their argument will be that the Indian government itself is not, uh, you know, following the laws and procedures it has laid down, right? And so uh, it would argue that some of the decisions or calls made by the Indian government are arbitrary or, uh, you know, not uh, justified. So it, I think what it's doing is it's not challenging the principle, but it is challenging on an incident by incident basis, right? Saying that this call or this account is not the correct one to take down or things like that. So also, right. I think uh, as we were discussing offline with Elon Musk now sort of backing out, uh, the chances are that the uh, Twitter management will remain, we'll see the same trajectory or direction from them when it comes to their dealings with the Indian government. I think now it's incumbent upon the lawyers of yeah. the Indian government to sort of prove that the calls that they have been making are correct and justified uh, in the court. Yeah, so many, so many of these pull-out jokes on Elon Musk uh, backing out of uh, Twitter, the, the Twitter deal, right? I mean, uh, that's, that's an interesting story, actually. I, I really feel I don't think he was ever intended to go through with it. Uh, and especially not after the stock market tanked, right? I mean, all right. After months of economic struggles, Sri Lanka has finally declared bankruptcy. On Tuesday, the Prime Minister told the Sri Lankan parliament that the country is not only bankrupt, but it has no fuel left. Government employees have been told to stay home due to fuel unavailability. Inflation spiked 54.6% in a year and is expected to hit 60% soon. And transportation costs have gone up 128% in only one month. Civilians are struggling to procure basic necessities like food and medicine. Protesters in Sri Lankan capital of Colombo stormed President Gotabaya Rajpaksha's palace last week clamoring for his resignation. Uh, Nirav, I mean, we're seeing some very drastic scenes uh, uh, from Colombo, right? I mean, uh, uh, and, and you spoke about uh, the reasons for the crisis earlier. Yeah, so this is far more chaotic than uh, what we had expected. Like we thought that, yes, uh, Sri Lanka had some trouble paying back its debts. It was over leveraged, but uh, I guess can't confirm. But also uh, there seems to be like a lot of siphoning off of the money. So what has happened is that, that the debts which were raised were siphoned off by the elites. So probably Rajpaksha family and others. And so not all of it was even used for development. And now the rest, the citizens are left with these bad debts to pay off. And I think this is like a very, very fragile situation. This also 
tells us that all the things right where we said like how sri lanka was fragile all the top leadership was like one family and there was no kind of no one uh, having any dissent or being able to point out the error you had a lot of debt which was taken over which led to a lot of malinvestment you had a lot of decisions which were taken without thinking through the consequences like organic farming covid kind of broke the back with no tourism so you're too dependent on one industry instead of being like a little more diversified and it was like a perfect storm which has come through right this actually tells you about kind of like a warning signal or maybe sri lanka is canary in the coal mine what has happened is with this uh, russia ukraine war uh, you've seen global prices of oil and energy go up a lot right so that affects the whole world it is the countries which are resilient and which can withstand shocks will come out stronger but if you are fragile you will crack uh, second thing is uh, china's belt and road initiative the bri all those loans uh, they come in with very tight covenants and they're protecting the lender a lot more than the borrowing country and this also kind of highlights that china isn't like the ally that it seems to be it seems more like shylock from shakespeare who wants his pound of flesh back right that in times of crisis if like the lender also renegotiates the debt and says you know what we'll give you like a longer uh, payment time and takes maybe a haircut on the loan which what imf typically does so you are better off borrowing from multilateral global agencies like the imf how much ever we kind of criticize imf and world bank they have been a little more easier in previous episodes of crisis like the east asian crisis in the late 90s with countries like indonesia than like what has happened where like from these chinese loans and a lot of countries like pakistan in our neighborhood but also like in ecuador a lot of chinese companies african nations which have borrowed a lot from china they seem to be quite vulnerable with the second order effect of the russia ukraine war is higher natural gas prices which leads to higher fertilizer prices which leads to higher agri commodity price right so when food and energy where the demand is very inelastic their prices go through the roof the poorest are hit the most obviously this kind of we've already seen some sort of a revolution and this mob has gone berserk it is very funny that there has been an australia sri lanka test match going on at the same time in colombo uh, where some people also stormed into the stadium but oh, thankfully the match went on as usual i think this is like a big reset for sri lanka hopefully india has assisted a bit but their problems are much bigger it's too deep a hole to be filled easily right so hopefully as uh, we see some semblance of peace there should be like a new government which is put in place and maybe all the other multilateral agencies take a haircut also probably the chinese banks which have lent too much on these i would say negative npv projects where they think that oh i'll just invest and they will come i think they also will have to take some sort of a haircut and they also realize that uh, rest of the world is not like china where uh, you invest and you have like a very high productivity and high efficiency and your return on capital is guaranteed so i think there's a lot to learn but definitely it kind of justifies india's decision where people were criticizing india that india did not join the belt and road initiative india did not want to be the part of rcep right and uh, because india felt that the all the contracts were very much in favor of china right and it's not a good bilateral trade if it is very much skewed in favor of one party and this is this kind of proves it and uh, hopefully other nations also learn uh, looking at sri lanka's plight yeah it's a useful lesson for everyone for sure uh, in fact i think uh, dr jayashankar when he was asked uh, maybe a couple of weeks back or so uh, rightly predicted that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better uh, and it's a, it's a fairly complex crisis right i mean uh, uh, i don't know what the way out is and finally uh, the bjp has nominated maestro ilai raja Uh, former athlete uh, PT Usha and two others to the Rajya Sabha. Uh, Tamil Nadu and Kerala have remained a challenge for the BJP for long. Uh, this strategy might offer them a better foothold in the south, where they have been struggling to make an impact. According to BJP circles in Kerala, Usha and her husband Srinivasan 
had been close to the RSS for long. Uh, she was also previously offered a ministerial role in a past BJP government that she declined. The other two persons, also from the South, uh, who were nominated to the upper house along with Usha and Ilairaja, are film screenwriter V. Vijayendra Prasad from Andhra Pradesh and spiritual leader Virendra Hegde from Karnataka. Abhishek, definitely interesting nominations, all four from the South, right? Uh, what do you make of this? As we all know, uh, the southern India continues to remain a, a tougher nut to crack for the BJP. Uh, and while uh, these decisions in themselves or in isolation have no impact, I think the idea is to you know continue to create a better perception of the BJP in, in the minds of the average uh, citizen there. Because in our uh, social media wars or you call it culture wars, there's always this perception created by a section of the uh, population in South, right? That the BJP stands for uh, Hindi imposition or it stands for a sort of hegemonic type of Hinduism which is not inclusive and so on, right? And so it's like an upper caste party, it's a Brahmin party of Brahmins and things like that, right? These are common stereotypes used by uh, opponents of the BJP to sort of paint them. And so uh, the challenge for the BJP is to consistently keep uh, pushing back and fighting against these narratives. And so I think uh, nominating four uh, very well-known, illustrious achievers in the different fields is just sort of a signal or an attempt to create some kind of uh, you know goodwill uh, among the people of uh, these states right and as you said all of them are uh, you know very well celebrated achievers in very different uh, diverse fields and so yeah i would say it's a, a good initiative but what I, I wouldn't say that it this translates to anything more concrete at this stage. Now, some folks have brought up, uh, you know, uh, Maestro Eleraja's caste and everything. But, you know, I think the man is so much more uh, than all of that, right? I mean, he rises above all of that because uh, uh, he's probably among the top five best music directors that the country has ever produced. And he's been prolific for like four plus decades now, I think, even perhaps even more. So great recognition of that, uh, I would say, uh, right? And likewise with uh, the others as well. You know, P.T. Usha, for example, used to be, I mean, is still the, the doyen of Indian athletics, right? Uh, was a North Star for anyone in sports uh, for a long, long while and such an inspiration for women as well. So each of these nominations, Mr. Virendra Hegde, for example, right? I mean, any any place, you know, South uh, South Karnataka, if you go there, I mean, you, you have photos of him at uh, different places. Uh, so again, someone who is a remarkable philanthropist, a uh, person who's given back a lot to the community, and Mr. Uh, Vijendra Prasad as well. All four of them um, have been excellent at, uh, you know, whatever they've done, uh, their chosen professions, vocations, and also, I mean, have that right ideological sort of a bent of mind as well, uh, right, and fairly dharmic. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, all four nominations are uh, amazing, I would say. So, we have a question on YouTube. Harsh Agarwal asks, uh, does Sri Lanka crisis have any implications on India, both economically and politically? Abhishek, you want to take that? I mean, people have drawn parallels somehow, right? Uh, although I don't know how one can, uh, you know, draw parallels between what's happening in Sri Lanka and, you know, our economy, you know, comparing our debt in absolute terms, uh, irres irrespective of the GDP, or, you know, comparing productivity, innovation, our uh, the building blocks of our economy and so on. What is the lesson uh, from this and what are the implications on India, in your opinion? So, the lesson uh, 
or the lesson being taken by the opposition parties is very simple that use this as a, a ominous portent to sort of say that what is happening in on the streets of colombo is what will happen on the streets of new delhi soon right and uh, so this kind of alarmist and almost uh, wishful thinking will continue in some quarters i feel right because uh, there are these sort of buzzwords that they will throw right that you had a quote and quote majoritarian government or an ultra nationalist leaders at the helm who led their country to ruin right and so that is the narrative that anyway the opposition has already for the bjp government here right and so we will see plenty of uh, that kind of commentary on social media or media right i think the lesson for india is to continue to build on the theme of uh, atmanirbhar bharat right something we have been galvanized into post the covid crisis right we need to be a resilient country when it comes to all sorts of facets whether it is our supply chains whether it is our economy whether it is our defense and we are in various stages of it in you know various years right so clearly for example we have discussed this in the past right we are not there yet in let's say defense right but we are sort of better off in various other things right like food security is much better today in india than at any point in time in our history right energy security is sort of better right with our strategic location with our strategic relationships we are much better off in you know many other uh, lines of supply chain today than we were let's say even 5 10 years ago so i think that's the lesson to take that you know if you are too reliant on debt you are too reliant on other countries right then even one or two incidents or events can totally you know put a country uh, off its path right uh, but luckily we are a large country which is which has you know sort of large reserves of both manpower and uh, let's say economic power and so i think we, i would say that the lesson to take is to continue to be you know on this uh, building up our resilient uh, path in the near future uh, himang palan has uh, an interesting comment on youtube he says lessons for lesson for indians is to keep electing modi yeah n- uh, no i mean it's it's certainly interesting i would say right and uh, you know in fact i mean some have criticized uh, this government for being very fiscally prudent uh, in fact in the past right and uh, you know we had one famous uh, economist slash politician suggest that income tax has to be abolished and stuff right i mean uh... yeah so if you look at the specific policy so number one was a drastic change in taxation right that is something the government has avoided and we should continue to avoid number two was a drastic change in let's say the agricultural policy right suddenly doing away with uh, uh, fertilizers and saying that we'll go totally 100% on green farming right those kind of things uh, and as neerav correctly said that's like a canary in the coal mine kind of situation the thing to learn is that we should not do such things uh, full scale right despite what some environmental activists might want you to do like vandana shiva right so uh, i mean some of these activists have also been discredited as part of this whole incident right people who have had their utopian dreams of uh, green farming have also been exposed uh, in this incident 
do you think india will step in and actively aid in terms of financial assistance and so on because i think one of the points that uh, dr jayashankar also was making uh, some weeks back was you know we have uh, done military interventions right uh, uh, whether in bangladesh and so on but uh, we haven't really done like a financial intervention uh, so this may be like the first of uh, that sort right i mean considering that you know sri lanka is also strategically important for us yeah i think india has to do as much as possible to sort of stabilize the uh, situation there but i think there are a few challenges right now for example as you saw yesterday and today people are uh, storming the gates uh, of the various residences of the prime minister and president obviously the rajapakse family is totally discredited now right uh, they had brought in a new prime minister uh, ranil vikramasinghe to sort of stabilize the th- things but even his private home was burned uh, yes burned down yesterday and so he is also resigning and so right now while there is a lot of anger and emotion on the streets uh, it's not clear as to what is the alternative until there is a, a stable alternative in place which might be a situation where there is a all party national consensus government for example right uh, till that is in place there is only so much that india can do right because with whom will you negotiate and discuss these things in terms of uh, what kind of a package or uh, reconstruction program that you can do for the country and so right now what india is doing is helping out on in terms of uh, just the real Uh, basics right like fuel or medicines things like that uh, but what more can be done will require firstly some sort of stability to come in uh, in terms of the government government there yeah i i saw some uh, wacky theories on uh, twitter right saying that uh, sri lanka should uh, outsource its defense and foreign policy to india and become a vassal state uh, and and i mean few interesting comments on youtube as well um, Himang Palan says, uh, "Can Sri Lanka become a Hong Kong for India? Has the Sri Lankan crisis peaked? I think so, right? I mean, but although you don't know how uh, how much worse it can get uh, going from here. Uh, well, uh, we're going to be doing an exclusive episode on on the Sri Lankan crisis. Um, uh, we've been covering a fair amount of uh, geopolitics with Valina's uh, talk, uh, right? Uh, so we're going to do an episode uh, shortly. We'll keep you guys informed. That's it from us." Uh, for this week thank you so much again for joining us uh, do stay safe take care and uh, until next week uh, keep watching all of our stuff sharing all of our stuff and if you catch us on your favorite uh, podcast platforms don't forget to rate and review us so more people can discover us uh, if you have any comments or suggestions you can reach out to us on social media we're at bharatvartha on facebook twitter and uh, uh, youtube and elsewhere uh, so thanks again for joining us uh, folks uh, have a great week ahead